Hello, friends. Greg Kokel back with you live and kicking in the studio uh, once again after a three-week hiatus uh, due to surgery. I'll tell you, that three weeks went fast in the sense that it seems like I was just in studio last week, but it was, I guess, four weeks ago now, and actually exactly three weeks from the day this podcast or broadcast is released— um, let me back up and put it this way. Uh, exactly three weeks ago from the release, I was in surgery getting a new hip. Okay, so I had mentioned that before I went on my hiatus and convalescing the last few weeks and rehabbing a bit, which I will continue my rehab as the weeks go on. Um, and I mentioned this, so I know some of you at least were praying, and I want to thank you for that. Things are going fine. The hip's working well. Um, I have been, I'm driving now. I've been walking without a cane for a week. Uh, <clears throat> and... You know, all systems moving right ahead. I'm the poster boy, you know, for this kind of surgery. My right hip. Now, the <laughs> uh, the MRIs showed both hips and showed the left hip to be worse than the right, but the right was the one inflamed and hurting, so that's the one they replaced, which means I'll probably have this done again next year, um, maybe around the same time, uh, December or January, because I've got some freedom in my schedule then to lie low for four or five weeks and uh, get fixed. And then I'll have, uh, I'll be bionic in both hips. Um, So thank you for the prayer and I'm doing fine. Um, You know, when you think about it, and this is the way I've characterized it before. And basically they cut my leg off and sewed it back on. Now, of course that's an overstatement and cut everything off, but they do cut the bone, right? And then they put a new hip joint in together, and then they put you back together. And, and when you consider the magnitude of the task, of what's involved, you one would think I'd be laid up for months. Um, and it turns out there are two ways to do this surgery. One's from the back posterior through your glute. Then they got to slice up the glute. Or from the front, that's anterior, and they don't cut any muscle. They just pull it all apart, pull it aside, Got a six-inch incision, and in they go. And two hours later, you got a new hip, and that's what I had. And when they do it that way, man, it's a it's a a cakewalk compared to the way it has been for some who had this done five, ten, fifteen years ago. And uh, I, in fact, I was walking the first day. They had me out of bed. I was using obviously a, a, a what do you call those things? Those roller things. Those deals that old people use to keep them from a walker there it is my mind is going here so i used a walker for about two weeks after two weeks i i i I used a cane sometimes but getting around the house you know i just walk slowly and as i moved around did my exercises and stuff then i could walk more quickly if i sit down for a few hours i freeze up a little bit but it's all going fine okay but it is amazing to me when you think about what they actually do, and and I don't know, maybe this is going to gross some people up, but I'm just explaining what the doctor explained to me. And then, you know, if you have a surgeon that takes the time, as mine did, to actually show you what he's going to do with a, like a bone and a ball and socket and all that other stuff. Here's what it looks like, what we're going to do. They cut off the bad socket, and then they kind of hollow out the bone and then the new socket is attached to a spear-like effect that slides 
into your old bone where the marrow used to be, and then they hook it back into a new socket or an attachment that's the new socket, and they clip it together and sew you up. And so that part which rotates the socket is all like machine work. Magnificent. Works great. Now, what hurts is the cut and the swelling and the, you know, the bone has to adapt to the inserted portion, but it's really magnificent what they do. And uh, apparently I have a pretty good surgeon who did a pretty good job, and he's got a good reputation around Thousand Oaks area where I live, Conejo Valley in Southern California. So I knew I was in good hands, and I, I was convinced of that just talking with him about it, not only checking out his uh, his uh, stats and everything but uh, and his bona fides, but uh, just the way he comported himself. So I'm doing fine, but I'm amazed at what is possible. And uh, they say, you know, in another three weeks, I'll be essentially back to normal. I can do everything that I might have done with my normal hip when it was working really great. And eventually I have the other one replaced, but um, that's just the way it works. Now, I was talking to my younger brother, Mark. He's only two years my junior. He's retired now. I was up in Seattle, had been a pastor for 35 years in the Los Angeles area. And he was very encouraging. <clears throat> he said, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> that's what happens. Everything begins falling, uh, begins to fall apart. And you can slow down the process, definitely. Diet, exercise, being careful, blah, blah, blah. But it's still going to happen. So I just uh, I need to make my peace with that fact. But I want it to happen slowly. I want a long time here with my wife and my family and with you in some measure. Um, we'll see what the Lord gives me. But uh, I've got a, a little bit of a new lease on leg life, at least as a result of that uh, that surgery. Uh, just letting you know about some th things coming up, and I'm thrilled to find out about um, Dallas Rethink coming up. Now it's f not Rethink. Sorry about that. <laughs> Everybody's gagging here. We're not supposed to use that word. Dallas Reality. Okay, it's been reality now for about four years. And uh, is this our 10th season or our 11th season? I think last year was our 10th season. And uh, but we're blowing out all the stops. Dallas is coming up in four weeks. Okay, so it's like what is the? I don't have my calendar in front of me. The twenty third, maybe it's here on my announcements. Twenty third, twenty fourth, something like that. Twenty fourth, is that the number of? Oh, I see. Two plus four is two four. Got it. Okay, hand signs here on uh, February twenty fourth and twenty fifth, Friday Saturday in North Dallas. It's Allen. Texas, actually, but North Dallas, you know that we have a capacity of 2,500. That's pretty good. We are 72.44% full, three-quarters full, four, more than four weeks out from the event. So if you guys want to go to Dallas, and I hope you do, because this is the best reality we have ever done. In fact, my, I finally talked my wife into making some adjustments in her own schedule, so she's actually coming with me for the duration of that weekend. Uh, so that uh, so she can participate and uh, see this particular um, rethink. I'm sorry, I did it again. Reality. I'm going to get sued because it's such a great one. 
And I've said this before, I don't know what we're going to do next year. <clears throat> so please, if you're within striking distance of Dallas, um, mark that weekend off for your middle schooler, for your high schooler, college student. And I've often said we don't check IDs. You can come if you want. If you're older, it's all right. It's a great event, and I hope to see you there. Um, also, tomorrow, which is today when this is being released, uh Let's see the date. Yeah, that would be uh, Wednesday at noon. We have John Noyes, and uh, John is on twice a month with To The Point Live at noon, second and fourth Wednesday of the month, if you just want to make a note on your calendar. And um, what uh, this week the New York Times reported um, on a— a parent who found out that her daughter had been identifying as a boy for a month at school, but the school had not notified her. And so this is a big to-do. Now, this is an article in the New York Times, but this is happening all over the country, where public schools are keeping really important information regarding uh, parents' kids in the school from the parents, and actually encouraging things with the student, who's a minor, that parents would not encourage. And these have to do with medical decisions for their lives. Okay, this is crazy stuff. Most of you know about that. That's what John's going to be talking about tomorrow. And uh, so that's To The Point Live at noon. Uh, you can find him on YouTube, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. That would be our sites there on those uh, on those social media sites. And if you don't know how to get there, just go to str.org and scroll down to the bottom to our social media channels. And, of course, if you miss the live video, you can always watch the replay. So um, I, what I, I want to go to—we got a caller here from Reno, Nevada. So let's just go to Jane. We'll just jump right in here and uh, chat with her. I'm trying—oh, yeah, I pushed the button. Okay. Is that right? How does this work? I've only been doing this for 33 years. Okay. This is Jane in Reno, Nevada. Jane, thank you for your call. Hello, Greg. Hi. What's a person in a Bible class at my church was uh, talking about a decision she'd had to make, uh-huh. and she said she had thought about it and prayed about it and was tending to make a certain decision, but she wanted confirmation from God before acting on the decision. Uh-huh. She asked for some day if God approved her decision. So it wasn't any miraculous, but it was something that would be noticeable. It'd be a little bit different than usual. Mm-hmm. Is this another version of does God whisper, and is it appropriate to ask God for a sign? Yeah, uh, th- I'm so glad you called, and of course there's a lot entailed with what you just described, and uh, primarily certain assumptions about how, as Christians, we are to make important decisions in our life, okay? And the way, as you started out uh, talking about your friend, you said, well, she had a decision she had to make in her life. But then as you described how she was going about it, it's clear that the decision wasn't one she was going to make. It was one that God was going to make for her, and she was going to obey. Now, it may sound like a strange way of putting it, but this is what it amounts to. Okay, I have something. I have. To, I, I'm. I got. I'm at a fork in the road. I can go left. Or I can go right. I have to decide. So what do I do? I know. I'll let God decide, and then tell me which way to go. Then I'll just do what He says. 
Now, I think this is a noble sentiment and a noble intention. The question is, is this the way the Bible teaches us to make decisions about important things in our lives? Does the Bible teach that God essentially now makes our decisions for us and then communicates the decision He wants us to make through some means, and there are a variety of ways that He might do that, um, as you just described, uh, maybe a um, providential sign, and then when we see Him respond, I or nay, regarding this sign that we've requested, then we'll know what we're supposed to do. Then we basically obey what God has decided. So this approach, and it does relate to Does God Whisper, that broader issue, and I've written that piece on, and you can find it on online, uh, actually a number of solid grounds where I, I uh, address that question and all these verses that people use to try to make the case that this is the proper way to make decisions. We've also uh, kind of, I think, collected those three solid grounds into a workbook called um, A Ambassador's Guide to Hearing the Voice of God, or something to that effect. But yeah, this is in that category. So the first thing I want uh, to mention here, and I, I'm sure you see this right away, is that <clears throat> on this way of deciding, making decisions, the the decision-maker is God not us. Our decision, quote-unquote, is simply to obey what God has decided and shown that we should do. Okay, so uh-huh. so that's the underlying presumption. Now, are there times in Scripture where God has a particular thing He wants some particular person to do, and He shows up and communicates that in a particular way? Does that happen in Scripture? Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, classically, when given the providential sign, you have Gideon, you know, in Judges 6, I believe, um, where he throws down the fleece, okay? But there are a few other cases where there are providential signs. The question isn't whether God has done this in the past, but whether that is offered in Scripture as the model for decision-making. And the answer to that question is no. It's not offered as the model. And the reason we know this is because, first of all, it's never taught as such. Like, before you do anything, always ask God what He wants you to do, and then He'll show you in some way. Nothing like that. We have occasions when people in leadership, in the Old Testament, maybe David, or some someone else, was supposed to pursue God or get his counsel on some particular thing and didn't and was held responsible. But that doesn't mean this is the way everyone needs to do it today. And this is another point. When you go to the New Testament, you don't see that kind of directive. And in fact, you see something entirely different. God giving instructions from his word, laying out general patterns of things we're supposed to follow. So, um, so th- th- this isn't something taught in Scripture, and even in the cases where we see God making a particular uh, or d- d- dictating a particular direction for somebody, it's interesting the way this is done. Uh, I've looked at, for example, just the book of Acts, where you see intervention, supernatural intervention of guidance in a number of different cases, 
I think there are 14 of them from the from Pentecost, from chapter 2, 14 times God intervenes and says, don't do that, do this, or something like that. Now, notice, some of these are like jailbreaks. <laughs> An angel shows up and says, get out. You're... <laughs> so there's a direction from God that's a supernatural act from an angel as the agent, you know. Sometimes it seems to be a prophetic word. Sometimes there are visions or dreams or things like that. But in every single case that we have any detail of, they are always supernatural interventions that cannot be misunderstood. And this is something a lot of people don't catch. They see a supernatural intervention, and they think this is the way it's always supposed to happen, except for it doesn't happen quite that way. Instead, it's a nudge, nudge, hint, hint. And here are these little, you know, gingerbread pieces that make a trail that we're supposed to interpret and cobble together, and then we figure out, well, that must be what God wants us to do. And so... Uh, so even though you have circumstances in Scripture where there are special directions, they are always a supernatural intervention. They are not the standard operating procedure of the believers, especially in New Testament Christians. Now, of course, this is a very broad topic, and I, I know people are thinking, what about, what about, what about, what about? So, uh, but let's just deal with one what about, and that's, going, that's uh, uh, the fleece. Gideon's fleece in Judges 6, okay? And what's interesting about the case of Gideon's fleece is that Gideon had already had a supernatural visitation from the angel of the Lord telling him what he was supposed to do, okay? And that was he was supposed to fight against the Midianites, lead the Jews against the Midianites. So there was no question about what God wanted him to do, there was the motif I just described, an intervention, a showing up in a supernatural way of an agent of God telling Gideon, do this. This is my purpose for you. Okay? But you see, that wasn't enough for Gideon. Gideon got nervous. And if you read the account, you can see this from the beginning to the end. And Gideon gets nervous, and he said, okay, really? Um, I want a sign. And this is where he puts out the fleece. Now, do you remember the occasion of putting out the fleece, the details there? Yeah, so there was a difference between the, the dew being on the fleece versus the ground, and then I think he even asked for it a second time. The, the, I forget the order, but that's right. the ground he would re- be wet. Yeah. He reversed the order. Notice it's interesting. He's putting out a fleece now, not to get guidance, but to affirm supernatural guidance he'd already gotten. All right. This is this is not this is not faith. <laughs> this is weakness. You know. Mm. Nevertheless, uh, when he puts out the the sign, uh, or he makes the request, notice that this the request is for another supernatural sign. In other words, there'd be do. Let's. I, I get the order mixed up, but you got it right. It was one way, and then the other. He did it twice. Do on the fleece. And none on the ground, and then how about just reversing it? Do on the ground, uh, ground, but not on the fleece. So, so he got the sign he requested, which was a supernatural sign, because that wouldn't happen naturally. And he asked, "Okay, how about best two out of three? Okay. So, so in the case of Gideon, you do not have an example of how to determine God's will. 
you have an example of somebody who knows what God wants and is it and is I don't even think using the word confirmation is an is an appropriate word because the the the, the initial directive was not confusing okay but out of his weakness he wants another okay let's have another go at it and another go at it both times with the fleece so that's three supernatural signs all right. He's still a little nervous. It isn't until he goes down into the camp of the Midianites, disguises himself, and he hears about a dream one of the Midianites had that indicated to the Midianites that the Jews were going to defeat the Midianites. Okay. So there's a lot going on here. But one thing that's really important, so it's it's not an example or a motif that we're encouraged to follow. That's not what we should be taking back from that. But even if we were to follow it, um, notice the importance of the kind of fleece that Gideon put out. Now, I think the way you described your friend's uh, fleece is that um, it wasn't a supernatural one, but it was a, something a little different, right? Mm-hmm. That it wouldn't normally happen. Right. Yeah. Okay, here's the problem. What if... It would normally happen, but it just did by accident. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, we'll see. Then somebody is taking what may be an inconsequential detail and presuming it is a directive from God or evidence of a directive from God. This is why the supernatural element is really important, because you don't want any false positives. If you just have something like, well, if she answers on the third ring, then I know she's the one that you've, you know. Well, yeah. yeah that, well, you can get a false positive there. <clears throat> so you want to have a you you want to have a circumstance in which there's no false positive. This is why, if you're going to, this would be my recommendation for those that are intent on using some kind of a fleece or a supernatural sign. Okay. Ask for—I'm sorry, intent on asking for a sign of some sort, you have to always ask for a supernatural sign, okay? So Uh if you want—you could say this. How about this? God, if you want me to do A, then levitate the kitchen table. Make the kitchen table float in the kitchen for five minutes. All right? Now, why not? If, 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 if you're asking for a sign, why not ask for something like that? And I tell you why people aren't going to ask for that, because they know that the, really, I mean, the, the table's not going to rise up off the ground. Okay? Now, if you ask for a supernatural sign, though, and God doesn't answer with a supernatural sign, it's possible that you're getting a false negative. You're not going to get a false positive, in other words, because it's not going to rise off the ground unless God does that. But maybe maybe God isn't interested in answering with a sign, and because he didn't answer with a sign, you're taking that as a negative. That is, you're saying, oh, God doesn't want me to do this. So if you want to be really safe with a fleece, you have to ask for two signs. You have to say, if you want me to do this, levitate the table. And if you 
don't want me to do this, levitate the overstuffed chair in the living room. Hmm. Now, if neither levitates, then you know for sure that God is not choosing to use any kind of sign to make the decision for you. You won't get a false positive. You won't get a false negative. Uh, there's a there's a funny because um, when I give a talk on this, I I use this quotation of um, what is the what is that that cartoon guy that really goofy weird cartoon guy that's really obnoxious. Um, what is that uh, TV show? Oh, for goodness sake! And he's got two little obnoxious kids and teenage kids. What is it? No, not fail. It, it's like from the 90 Simpsons. Simpsons. Okay, Fred Simpson. There you go. Oh, Homer. Oh, no, Homer Simpson. Okay, where's yeah. Fred come from? Yeah, Homer Simpson. So Homer Simpson is saying he, he's, he, his wife is going to have another baby, and he doesn't want a baby. And he wants every, everything's perfect the way it is. So he's praying. And he said, God, if you don't want us to have another baby, then give us no sign. Then he looks around and nothing happens. He said, good, thank you. We know that, you know. Oh, now, so to show my gratitude, here is a plate of cookies. If you want me to eat these cookies instead of you eating them, please give me no sign. And he looks around and he says, thy will be done. And then he starts eating the cookies. Okay, so that's a comic characterization of the problem with fleeces. Now, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute. If I ask for a supernatural sign, that's testing God. And my response is, you're already testing God. You're asking for a sign. But when you ask for a supernatural sign on either side of the equation, you are asking in a way that prevents you from being misled by either a false positive or a false negative. Okay. Now, all of this seems kind of crazy, and it is, because still— it presumes that God is the one who makes the decision, and that is a presumption that is not biblically sound. The Bible teaches something else. It teaches that we are to take God's moral will and use wisdom that we get from different sources and weigh the decisions or options that are available to us and then decide based on that. We can ask for wisdom, we can pray for God to help us, but what we don't do is we don't pray to ask God to make the decision for us. Now, just a, a quick example from Scripture. When you read Romans 1, and then you also flip over to the last chapter, which I think is 15, you see Paul writing to the Romans, reflecting on his desire to come to Rome and be with the Romans. Okay? And then he gives all his reasons why he wants to do it. He said, I want to be encouraged by you. You can encourage me. I want to bear fruit among you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I want to go to Spain. I can stop by on the way over there and all these different things. He says, yet I have not been allowed to do it. He doesn't say that God told him not to. He just realizes that the circumstances have not, have, have not in a certain sense, lined up so that he would be able to accomplish what he says is a good goal. It's consistent with his spiritual gifting. He's an apostle to the Gentiles, and, you know, all these—he talks about all these reasons. He doesn't talk like evangelical Christians. I want to do this, but I'm not sure if God's telling me to do it. I'm not sure if I'm being led by the Spirit, which is a phrase that comes out of Romans 8 and Galatians 5, both Pauline, and neither 
in neither case does Paul use that phrase the way most people use it, as a nudge-nudge-hint-hint kind of feeling. No, there's none of that. It's a whole, he means something entirely different when you read the context, it becomes obvious. But, uh, but no, Paul doesn't do that. He just said, I got this, 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 I want to do it, this is all a good plan. But so far, no, it's not working out. Uh, but I'm going to keep trying, and here's his words, until at last I might succeed in coming to you. Until at last I might succeed. It's a good plan. And he also uses the phrase, the will of God, I think in that verse, by the will of God. In other words, he understands God's sovereign hand in the circumstance. He has a good plan. He's pursuing it, but he hasn't been able to break through yet. And when he does, he'll know that it's because God has made it possible for him to do that. He ended up going to Rome in chains, as it turned out, and that's where he died. But notice the motif there that you see, and you see in a lot of different places like this. So, um, Jane, this is a really, really good question, and of course, a lot of people have been listening for a long time know that this uh, is a pet concern of mine, and you alluded to that earlier in the piece I wrote about, does God whisper? Does he do the hint, hint, nudge, nudge, and we've got to get our ears right in line with him and make sure that we're hearing the voice of God accurately before we can move forward. And that is not a biblical notion. doesn't mean that God doesn't do things like that. There are times when he does, but he doesn't do a hint, hint. When he intervenes, when he gives direction in the Scripture, it's always clear, because you cannot obey an unclear command. Right. So, well, uh, thank you, Greg. That really helps clarify, especially with the examples you were giving. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you have, do you have the material, and does God whisper? Uh, I know where it is on your website. Yeah, the go and there. I have listened to you talk about it on on the podcast before, but yeah. this one seemed a little twist on it because of this issue with a sign. Sure, and that's that's Gideon, and and no, we go all the way back to Abraham when Abraham's servant is getting a um, a wife for Isaac. You've got a, him requesting a providential sign. Okay, so that's something God used in that circumstance, but because it happened a certain way four thousand years ago doesn't mean that that's the way it's supposed to happen now. Okay. All right? Right. Thank you so much. All right, Jane, I appreciate your call. Uh, Let's go to break, and we've got another call coming up when we return on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. Some former evangelical Christians who have deconstructed their faith are claiming that Christ's crucifixion was child sacrifice. Is that true? 
We'll find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, friends, Greg Kokel back with you here. And uh, just so you know, I'm not always very good about that, but I got some events coming up here that um, uh, that I wanted to let you know about. And in about a week and a half, Sunday, February 5, I'm going to be at Valley View Christian Church in Littleton, Colorado. It's outside of the Denver area. <clears throat> and uh, I will be doing the uh, Sunday services there. And then I will... Um, the following weekend, I'll be in Palm Springs. There's a Desert Apologetics Conference there. I think that's a Biola event with Craig Hazen. It actually starts on a Friday, February 9, and goes through... Wait, is that right? Runs Friday, February 9, through Saturday, February 11. The math isn't right there. So it's Friday and Saturday, and I'll be there Saturday. So my presentation is going to be on Saturday. Actually, in the middle, in between there, between Littleton and Palm Springs, I'm actually going to be at Focus on the Family and uh, doing a show to uh, talk about uh, Street Smarts, which will be released uh, midsummer. And also, I am just learned uh, today, got a note from Focus, that uh, they're going to focus on that, and then they're going to release that, that broadcast right at the same time that the book is released. Really glad to hear that. Um, <clears throat> in any event, so I, I will be in uh, Littleton, Colorado on Sunday, February 5. That's Valley View Christian. All right. Then I'll be uh, at Desert Apologetics Conference in Paul Springs on Saturday, February 11th. That's a two-day event. And um, I, I, there's more things going on with other team members I'll tell you about in the next break. That ought to cover it right now. All right, let's go to an anonymous caller. And uh, anonymous, thank you for calling. Hey, Greg. Hey. <clears throat> just, uh, just anonymous to protect identities. I don't know who's who's all. I know. I get it. Uh, it's all right. We're uh, our family is a, a long time, ten plus years listener and supporter, strategic mm. partner of Standard Reason. So, thank you. I uh, very much appreciate the ministry. And mm. uh, anyway, so the the question uh, is really my. My brother has recently come out as uh, adopting a homosexual lifestyle, mm -hmm. and um, obviously a lot of uh, emotions from our family with that. But the main question and the purpose of my call is to get some 
clear thinking Christianity mm. around how do we let him know he is still loved and respected and welcome without, I guess, uh, being too accepting or too affirming of his decision. You know, it seems like there's a, a fine balance there. And we recently went back and listened to your uh, interview with, um, forget his name now, Cook. Uh, what was his name? A gentleman that uh, recently wrote a book. He was on the your podcast, I think, in the last year or two. So went back and listened to that. And, you mean uh, he was a pri- he had been in the homosexual lifestyle and became a Christian? Yeah, yeah. Beckett Cook, I think we've had a, a number of those. Um, was he on our reality lineup last year? Do you remember? No, this was a this was a guest huh. Beckett Cook. Anyway, so oh Beckett, oh, wait, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I thought you said Kirk for some reason. Beckett, well, oh, Beckett no. was in our reality lineup <laughs> last year, so yeah, Beckett is right. It's great. Okay, so anyway, I, I was just you know hopefully you have some thoughts around, and I guess it's mainly you know uh, with with holidays or you know if we invite my brother over and he brings his significant other, yeah. you know what? How do we navigate that? Yeah. You know, we we obviously. Love is probably the first and foremost thought that comes to mind is I, I want my brother to feel loved and respected, but um, I don't want to support that decision. And I have right. three young kids, uh-huh. so I don't, you know, I'm trying to shelter them as well. You know, it just, there's a lot of stuff there. So I'm hoping you can oh, help yeah. you know, um, clearly think through some of this and, um, yeah. Yeah, well, there there is a lot of stuff there, and I have some recommendations but it's, I'll admit right up front, it's not a panacea. I think this is a circumstance that is like a minefield, and that for Christians to navigate this becomes difficult, partly because, um, hmm, because to navigate it faithfully and, and successfully, you need cooperation from both sides, and that cooperation mm-hmm. is not always forthcoming. All right. So it says in Romans, uh, what, 12, if possible, as far as it's within your power, be at peace with all men. Now, two things that we get from that, sometimes it's not going to be possible, and sometimes it's not even going to be within your power to make a difference. Okay. So let me offer a couple of thoughts here. And Beckett Cook, was we've had him on, and so if people want to refer to their— to uh, broadcast uh, dealing with these issues. Beckett's been on. We've had Christopher Yu on, on before, and in past years, he, Christopher also coming out of that lifestyle. They both have written books dealing with these issues. Okay, and and my counsel here is going to be consistent with that. Alan Schleeman is kind of our specialist, and we've backed, gone back and forth and back and forth, and trying to figure out the best way to maneuver in circumstances like this. So let me give you the first principle, um, but I. I need to ask another question first, just so I have a clear picture of the circumstances you're facing. Sure. Your brother, does he consider himself a Christian, a follower of Christ, or not? Um, I don't know today. I've reached out to him and wanted to get lunch and connect. I know if, if I, you would have asked him that a few years ago, he would have said yes. Uh-huh. He grew up in the church, uh, was taught the truth. In fact, uh, roughly, I want to say eight maybe 10 years ago, you know, we were kind of, hey, you know, there was a um, a friend who was a girl in his life that we were 
kind of seeing if, if she was interested in her or not type of thing. And he specifically said he wasn't interested because she wasn't a Christian. So that's huh. interesting. Know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, of course, um, a lot of times <clears throat> circumstances like this and commitments to lifestyles has an influence on somebody's theology. Right. It's, right. It, it should be the other way around. <laughs> but that isn't the way it often works. I mean, just being realistic, right. okay? So let me let me lay the some groundwork with a couple of principles. We do not expect Christians to—I'm sorry, we do not expect non-Christians to live like Christians, okay? And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about uh, someone in the Church who's living a sexually immoral lifestyle, extremely immoral, and he—he—he— he, he, um, chastises the Corinthian church for being so tolerant. You know, you ought to deal with this in the church. He said, now I'm not saying that you should judge outsiders, but judge insiders, mm-hmm. all right? Because they, because Christians are held to a dis- different standard than non-Christians. I'm just going on the presumption right now that your brother's not a Christian. Okay, and even if he, there was an expression of of uh, a faith commitment earlier, the the decisions that he's made uh, lately has indicated a direction that he's committed to that is not consistent with being a Christian. Now, this doesn't mean you have to make a big fuss about it with him. It would be great to have conversations with him about this if he was open to talking with you about it. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, you're just you're just going to be trying to get the lay of the land with him instead of trying to use it as an opportunity to chastise or whatever. But like, what's up with that kind of thing? Yeah. And and I think that's your spirit too. But let's just, so I'm just saying for all intents and purposes, your brother is not a believer and we do not hold believers to uh, the standard of Christians. And so um, I've said this many times, but it needs to be repeated. I never make somebody's sexual behavior, heterosexual, homosexual, an issue with regards to evangelism, because no particular sin is the problem. It's a sin writ broadly that is the problem for any non-believer, okay? So I'm not going to say, well, because you're gay, you're going to hell. Right. If you weren't gay, you'd be judged for your crimes such as they are. They would be different crimes against God. And if you were not gay— and you're heterosexual, what even if you're not in sexual sin, there is still a whole host of yeah. sins that you you are that would make them guilty before God. So the particular sin is not the issue for non Christians. All right. Um, and so this is why you, you kind of tossed this out as a general principle a few moments ago. Well, just love him is a good way to start. I said, yeah, that's a good way to start. It's a good way to end. In other words, I don't think. Um, you need to make your brother's homosexuality an issue in just about anything. Okay, now there are some exceptions to that. One, if if he chooses to go through a legal union, like a same-sex marriage, our advice is that if marriage ceremonies that people get invited to are for the purpose of celebrating that relationship, then a Christian can't celebrate a relationship that's not right. What about something, you know, on the other end of the scale of, of weight, if you will, of let's say it's this time next year, or, you know, 11 months from now, Christmas time, 
and we're looking at, you know, our family all gets together and the prospect of him coming to the, you know, coming over to the family and, you know, bringing his significant other, what are your thoughts around things like that? Sure. Right? Uh, well, actually, and this is advice I got from Alan Schleeman and he and our team, and I think it's good advice the more I think about it. If you turn down an invitation to, uh, say, a wedding, and so I'm going to give you a broader thing here, and it will make application to what you just asked. If you turn down an invitation of a wedding, <clears throat> you don't want to make it sound like you're rejecting the couple or the people. You're just refusing to participate in, in a celebration of something you think is wrong. Right. The uh, the alternative is <clears throat> to say, thank you for the invitation. Uh, you know my convictions. I can't celebrate this. However, you know, a month later or six weeks, can you guys both come over for dinner? And we'd love to have you over. <clears throat> so what you do is you show hospitality and kindness to th your brother and his companion, um, even though you're not celebrating the relationship. Now, mm -hmm. there's a book called uh, <clears throat> Rosaria Butterfield. Did I say it right, Amy? Rosaria. I always say it wrong, even when I was interviewing her. Oh, goodness. She's written a number of books, comes out of a gay, a lesbian lifestyle, but was led to Christ through the influence of the hospitality of a pastor over a period of two years. The book that she's just recently written is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Is that the title, Amy? The Gospel Comes with a House Key? Something like that. Butterfield is her last name. <clears throat> I can say that. Rosario Butterfield. Okay, Gospel Comes with a House Key. I'd suggest that you take a look at that, because what, she, what she's saying is, okay, what she's saying is that there there is a, a way to navigate these relationships that's cons that, that's consistent with Christian love and hospitality without compromising our convictions. And this was precisely the environment that that, uh, that 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 she experienced with the pastor that had a deep influence on her coming to Christ. Okay, she's an amazing woman. She's this was I think this is her third book. The first oh, the fourth. Yeah, okay, but the 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 first couple books uh, recounts her own journey and features this pastor and hospitality item. But this other book more recent book focuses in on the hospitality issue, okay? So there it's clear that we can have relationship with people who are in the world in all kinds of circumstances. Yeah, You might mm -hmm. have, look, at you could have another sibling who's not a Christian who's living with his girlfriend, or if not living with his girlfriend, sleeping with his girlfriend, though they have separate residences. Can you have them over for dinner? I don't think most Christians would balk at that. Right, right. Yeah, there's still a It's ironic you bring that up because my other brother uh, is living with his fiance, and they have two kids. They're kind of doing everything backwards. So yeah. huh. we had kids first, then got engaged, and <laughs> now they're. <laughs> well, this is a de facto <laughs> marriage. But we, but yeah, is, they're right. They're over. They're over, and nobody, nobody says anything, thinks anything. It's it's the you know the the homosexuality spin on this situation that has people. And, you know, it, it, it just is hard to think through all the emotion right now. And, yeah, I understand. Um, and, and your point exactly, that's what I've been, my wife and I have been discussing is, well, you know, we don't, we don't say anything about my other brother. And, and frankly, if I were, 
inviting a lo- one of my longtime buddies or something over for dinner and he happened to bring a significant other, I, I probably wouldn't think anything of it. So why is it different if it's my brother? Sure, you know, sure. It's, it's a more yeah. emotionally charged, of course. Mm-hmm. So this is all on your side of the ledger, right? Uh, we've got another 10 minutes. I want to talk about the other side of the ledger in a minute. Remind me if I don't get to that. But um, so, so you can just be normal. Don't make it an issue. Now, mm-hmm. you might think, well, wait a minute. Then they might presume that, look, if your brother knows you, knows your theology, they're not going to presume otherwise. They're not going to presume, oh, you're, you're taking homosexuality lightly. You're just choosing not to be judgmental when a non-Christian lives like a non-Christian. All right? So mm-hmm. that's, that's your general approach. All right? Now, if they come over for a couple of days, whether heterosexual or gay, and they wanted to spend the night in the same room, this is where I think it's fair to have a private conversation mm-hmm. and say, you know, th- 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 there's a problem here. And the problem is, um, <clears throat> in our home, we do not want to be a place where the kinds of things that we think are not right are practiced. Mm-hmm. We respect your right to do whatever you want, wherever you go, that isn't in our home. But in our home, this is our, our, our feelings about it, and will you respect that? Okay, so uh, you may not run into that circumstance, but it, it certainly is possible, okay? And especially since you have children, <clears throat> this can be—you can leverage that as part of your concern. So this is a very legitimate uh, approach that I think is very fair-minded. You can live wherever you want. In our home, though, and we're not saying, you know, my way or the highway. It's my house. you got to do it. This is, it that's, not the, that's not the spirit of this request. But rather, there's a sense of, you know, we, we, we want to be loving and accepting and all that. We are. But we, we also do not—we are uncomfortable with certain behaviors. If they wanted to do a seance, you know, you, you wouldn't—you'd say, in my house? No. Yeah, right, you go down right. in the Motel 6 and do that, but you can't have a seance. Okay, Okay. now, at, at, and especially in light of the kids, there's an impression on the kids. Now, just an aside about the kids, and that is, uh, I don't know how old your children are, but this is where you need to have conversations with them and, and to, so that they're, they know. They're four and two, four, two, and a newborn. So okay, well, you know, you're probably not going to have a conversation with them for a while about today, this. Probably not today, right. but, but what you say is probably applicable to a lot of listeners. And obviously sure, okay, so. so this is where, it, in, in age-appropriate ways, and for your kids, that will be like minimal five years from now, in my view. I was, I, mean, I was hoping for 20, but... Yeah, know, right. Uh, yeah. Well, the culture is so <laughs> aggressive to push to, to I, I think, it's so aggressive to, um, what's the right way I want to put this, to, to sully the, the, the sexual innocence of children. Yeah, yeah. They are so happy to do that, and that's what's going on now, that you, you're not going to be able to wait till 20 or 15 or even 10. But when the time comes, as you are communicating with them about virtue and virtuous living, when the issue of sexuality comes up, you're communicating to them God's purpose for sex. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. For one lifetime, yeah. Right. Okay, so and they're communicating. Then they may say, hey, well, what about Uncle Bob here? Yeah, well, Uncle Bob, he doesn't follow Jesus. We do. Mm-hmm. You know, and there it is. 
just so they know that, well, this is odd, but we're respecting that latitude they have um, to do that. So that kind of covers the kid's issue to some degree. Um, A bigger problem, though, is if you have your brother who now claims to be a Christian and wants to try to make the case that you can be a Christian and gay. Now you're talking theology. You're talking about something entirely different. You're not talking right. about accepting people and loving people and having hospitality and warm. Now you're saying, what does God say about this? What does Scripture teach on this issue? That's a different matter. And that's a discussion that, if that came up, that you'd want to engage, if they're willing to. And this is the other side. This is the other side of the, of the ledger. Mm-hmm. It is, in my experience, from what I've seen, the other side is not willing to be fair-minded about this, characteristically. We've had even occasions in our old extended family, you know, where where this concern came up. And, uh, and the extended family member considered members of our family haters and, you know, cutting him off from whatever. And we know he cut himself that's, off. That's exactly what we want to avoid, right? Sure. But um, yeah. it, like, like the Romans 12 passage, it may not be possible, but not because of your attitude or your conduct, but because of theirs. And don't be surprised if they cut, if your brother, I mean, hope this doesn't happen, and I know you want to avoid this, but don't be surprised if your brother, if he, if he doesn't perceive a, a, from his perspective an appropriate response, that is a gay-affirming response in some sense, from you and your family, then he may cut you off and believing, I'll give him credit, you know, I'll be charitable here, believing in his own mind that it's all your fault. Right. But it's not. They're the ones who make the separation. And this, by the way, happens a lot on, uh, even with political issues. You know, you don't agree with me and my view, I can't have a relationship with you. Right, right. Look at the damage you've caused to our family. And to our relationship, well, we didn't do any damage. We just we just refused to be bullied by you on some broader issue. But it's really a big deal when it comes to these kinds of sexual issues. So that's a dynamic you may have to face. And I think you're being really careful to try to avoid those circumstances. And my first um, my first impulse when you say, "What do we do?" I said, "You do nothing. You just love your brother mm-hmm. like you always do, and love his friend." And be kind and gracious and hospital and whatever. Occasionally, you may have to draw the line. Explain that in private. Your reasons for it. Hopefully, they'll be responsive. If you don't have to draw the line, you don't have to deal with it. If it gets theological, that's a different matter. Does that make sense? Well, makes a lot of sense. I, I greatly appreciate it. It's a tough spot to be in. You know. Yeah. And by the way, there's a lot of people that are in a spot like that without having gay relatives, but having gay-affirming relatives. Yeah. And so you, you, you could—this is part of the difficulty that we're facing. It's a whole culture that is awash in this sentiment, and that if you don't go along with these things and affirm them publicly, then you're homophobic. I mean, this is the word that comes out of their mouth. Yeah. It's yeah. so abusive. It's bullying. It's total intolerance. It's unkind. 
Uh, it's uncharitable, but none of that matters. What matters is the ideology, and and I'm not describing your brother here. I'm just talking to the social environment, because uh, I don't know about your brother. Mm-hmm. But what matters is advancing this ideology, and it's everywhere. And there's others like it. It's part of a larger package of ideas for which the the other side brooks no uh, refusal. They brook no uh, dispute. They brook no disagreement, period. It's it's my way or the highway. That is their yeah. attitude. And it's really sad that it's like that. But uh, I'm really glad you called, though. And, um, you know, I hope I'd be interested to get 20 seconds here. I'd be interested if you felt comfortable in six months or whatever, when you've been down this road a little bit and learn a few things just from your experience, call me back and let me know what you learned so others can learn from what you uh, sure. experienced. Here. Yeah, we'll do. All right, Anonymous. Thanks so much. Thanks, Craig. All right, buddy. Bye. Bye. Tough situation, friends. But uh, lots of tough situations for followers of Jesus who are faithful. And faithful in all ways, not just ideologically to the truth of Scripture, but also to being the kind of people that God wants us to be virtuous towards non-believers and others, you know. If possible, as far as within our power, being at peace with all men. All right, that's it, friends, for this hour. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give him heaven, all right? That's what we're talking about. Give him heaven. <laughs>